Welcome to the Final Draft Great Conversations podcast. Today's Great Conversation is with Mike McLeish. Fiona Harris and Mike McLeish are both what you might call a triple threat. They act, they write, and they direct. Fiona and Mike have also collaborated to write a novel, The Drop-Off, based on their successful web series of the same name. Today, Mike is joining me to discuss the messy politics of school in The Drop-Off. My name is Andrew Popel, and every week I broadcast Final Draft from the studios of 2SER in Sydney. We record on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation, and I want to acknowledge the traditional owners and pay my respects to their ongoing connection to this land. Here on Final Draft, we are committed to exploring the best of Australia's books, writing and literary culture, and we're also maintaining social distancing. That means I'm recording from home for a while. Please forgive the changes in audio quality. I am going to keep bringing you the best quality show that I can, and that means finding the best books and having conversations with those authors. If you are loving this and you want to help more people in their social isolation with great books, why not share the show and help others discover it? Every morning at Baytree Primary, Lizzie, Megan and Sam convene over coffee as their kids trundle off to class. They're a self-contained trio, Lizzie, a midwife, Megan, a former model turned fashion designer, and Sam, an ex-chef. Enthusiastic parents in activewear need not apply. These three have their morning friendship and that's, that's enough for them. But then tragedy strikes a school as the beloved lollipop man dies and somehow Megan has been roped into producing the end-of-year play. Join me as we discover Fiona Harris and Mike McLeish's The Drop-Off. <laughs> The Drop-Off is written by Fiona Harris and Mike McLeish. Now, Fiona and Mike are both what you might call a triple thread in they act, they write, they direct. That doesn't quite sum them up, though. And since sextuple is a weird word to use with someone that you've just met, I'll add that Mike also sings, dances and performs cabaret, while Fiona is a producer and also writes children's books. Together, they have created The Drop-Off, and Mike is joining me to discuss the messy politics of school drop-offs. Welcome, Mike. Thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks for having me, Andrew. Sorry, Fiona can't be here. She sends her best. And look, we have we have spiritually with us her creation in the drop off. And I want to I want to sort of tell people a little bit about this because every morning at Baytree Primary, Lizzie, Megan, and Sam convene over coffee as their kids trundle off to class. They're a self-contained trio: Lizzie, a midwife; Megan, a former model turned designer; and Sam, an ex-chef, or as he prefers, he just doesn't get paid for it anymore. Enthusiastic parents in activewear need not apply. These three have their morning friendship, and that is enough for them. Now, the drop-off started as a web series that both uh, you and Fiona wrote and starred in. The episodes, like the book, focus on the interactions between Lizzie, Sam, and Megan. The chemistry, though, comes from more than their shared circumstances. Parents doing the drop-off at school are, by necessity, those whose careers and life choices have taken them out of that nine-to-five what attracted you to writing about these sorts of characters? Um, I think initially, and for the same reason that we wanted to make the, the web series, is that what we found in our experience of the school where our girls uh, attended primary school is that we made friends when we, we didn't want to. We had no interest in making any new friends. We were done with that. We had the friends that we had and that was it. And then all of a sudden you make these, you form these accidental friendships that become a really important part of your life because unsurprisingly you see these people at the drop-off more often than you see friends that you might have a really long history with you see these people five days a week and, and all of a sudden 
they're the people that you look forward to seeing and they're the people that you look forward to sharing news with and they're the people that you look forward to confiding in. So we wanted to explore um, exactly what that, what that meant to people, those accidental friendships that turn into really important relationships. I guess it's a bit of a cliche almost of life that, uh, you know, people have these knits, knit group of friends that they've carried through from school and university. Did it challenge your idea of what friendship even means to have these, these friendships thrust upon you that perhaps were not of your choosing, but it sounds like worked out really well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, one of, one of the, the main differences between um, Fiona and me is Fiona has maintained friendships from almost from birth. Like she has so many people that she considers to be her best friends. Um, and I've, I've always been more of a loner. I've got, you know, my, my one best mate from school that I still see and we still catch up. But really, more often than not, I'm just Fiona's plus one at every social gathering, you know. And so when we started making these friends at primary school, I mean, both our girls are in, are in high school now, but these people that we met, and I can think of, you know, there are four families off the top of my head who we now count as some of our closest friends. And it's, it's, a, it's a strange thing to, it's a, particularly for me, it was a strange thing to rediscover the ability to, to build a friendship in your mid-40s. Again, it was something I was completely ambivalent about. I didn't want to do it. But in the same way, you know, the, the book's a lot about uh, community and, and getting involved and, and dipping your toe in, that, in, that, in the water of, of volunteering and getting involved. And what seems like a chore initially, once you actually take that first step, you find a lot of joy and satisfaction in it. And that, it was the same for me with, with making these, these friendships. I think what you've just said there, like so many things in the drop-off for the reader is going to resonate in this unconscious way, things that maybe we've never brought to the, the fore of our, our, our you know, thinking mind. But yes, that, that makes so much sense. Except that in any other month, on any other planet, anywhere, the drop-off might have landed as clever social satire and commentary, but instead, in the middle of a pandemic and social isolation, this reads more like social contact fetish. There's so much human contact and, and people sitting on benches together. We're, we're talking just as schools are starting to welcome students back one day a week. How has all this changed the way you think about your book? <laughs> it's, I mean, it is a you know, to make the understatement of our lifetime, it's, it's, it's bizarre. We had no intention of writing what has become sort of a nostalgia piece. You know, it feels like when we've been reading excerpts and, and, and sort of doing, doing as much publicity as we can to get this book out into the world, it reads like an alternate universe now. You know, you are, you're reading scenes of just kids running around a playground and people hugging and shaking hands and exchanging coffee and sitting on benches and doing all these things that until, until relatively recently seemed completely natural and now seem completely alien. So, I mean, for, for the most part, we feel really happy to be, um, to be able to put something that we've created out into the world at a time like this, particularly something that, you know, Basically, everything that we write, we want it to have equal parts humour and heart. And we feel like now more than ever, 
people don't necessarily want to be reading novels about a, a dystopian future because we're in the middle of the dystopian future. So maybe it's a nice time just to, to take a break from that and read something that, um, that deliberately wants to uh, make you smile and feel good. It, and it definitely does make us make it made me smile. It made me feel good. It was just so interesting because it is so recent that this was a very contemporary novel. And, and even this morning, as I walked to get a coffee, sort of one of my, my very limited daily excursions, I walked past a cafe that had, I think only three, but three pairs of chairs out. And I thought, wow, that's, that's a bit extreme guys. Come on too soon. <laughs> It's so true. I mean, you know, we find ourselves, uh, you know, last night we do a family movie night every Friday and last night we watched um, Sister Act, which I, I, I don't think I'd ever watched the whole way through. And the amount of scenes that involve audiences and crowds and large gatherings and you could say, and both our daughters and us as well was, was sort of bristling at just, at just the sight of it, at, at the sight of a large group of people standing in the same place, shoulder to shoulder. You know, social distancing has become such a crucial part of our day-to-day -day existence and our minute-to-minute -minute existence that even just seeing that on screen is sort of jarring. And it does seem like, and I mean, hey, you know, Sister Act was what, early 90s, late 80s, early 90s? So it's a, it's a long time ago. But just that sense of togetherness and group gatherings and large gatherings and audiences. And as a live performer, it's something that um, I've always taken for granted how much of my lifeblood comes from sharing time, spending time with an audience that it just, it seems like such ancient history, which is, I mean, as you know, as a live performer, it's something that I've found, um, so, not surprisingly depressing, just really depressing, that, that lack of um, shared storytelling space, you know. So, but, but in, I mean, in the same way, like I said before, to be able to put a book out into the world now where you don't need to gather in it, this is something you can have just for you. And so this is, you know, I like to imagine in my mind a lot of people at once reading the book together. And that's, that's sort of how I, how I get that lifeblood at the moment while I can't perform live. You've said something really interesting there. So in my time talking to authors, I frequently hear the refrain of writing being a solitary business, but also the importance of perhaps disregarding your audience. It's very hard to write authentically if you, are, uh, if you have your audience too close in mind which is the exact opposite of being a performer, of getting up on stage. That energy must, I, I can only imagine how much that fuels you. Was it a different process? Did you, did you have an audience or did you have to change the way you've, you've created, say, stage art? Yeah, very much so. I mean, full disclosure, the, the lion's share of the work on this book was done by Fiona Harris. You know, this is, she is the absolute queen of long form narrative and plotting and structure. Um, she is, you know, the, the architect and the carpenter and the designer. And I, I really come in and give it a lick of paint. Um, so, but it, it obviously it was a very different process because everything that I've written in the past and a lot of what we've written together is designed 
to be consumed by a live audience. So it's just when you're writing a, a novel, obviously it's a completely different skill set and a different approach because normally when I write something for live performance, when it's on the page, that's just that's that that's a fetal version of what it will end up being once I've performed it live a bunch of times because that's when I discover what works and what doesn't and you can mould it and shape it, et cetera, et cetera. But obviously with a novel, once you, you know, send it off to the printers that that's that's it the words on the page are it so it was a fascinating experience for me personally to just take all that time to really consider and hone and and i would always say it out loud everything that we wrote for this novel i read out loud because i wanted to see how it sounded coming out of my mouth and how how my ears absorbed it and how my mind absorbed the words like that so and it was actually very freeing from a personal point of view as a creative to know that once it's on the page and once you tick that page and you're happy with it and the editor's happy with it and the publisher's happy with it they are the words that is it you are done so i i really enjoyed the experience i mean obviously it's a vastly different discipline but I think ultimately, for me, the, the goal remains the same. The goal is to, is to reach out and touch an audience. And again, I'm saying that's a turn of phrase that is not welcome right at the moment. I'll reach out and touch, but figuratively, be able to reach out and, and touch an audience. So the goal remained the same, but the, the, the skills employed to, to do that were, were, were drastically different. And of course, then the acting turns to the reader who has to create these characters from the words you've given them. And each of these characters has their own voice. And you captured this in the writing. Lizzie is written in the first person, Megan in the third, and Sam's story is epistolary captured in emails to his best mate. What was the motivation behind those decisions? One of the motivations was was practical because I I wrote all of the Sam chapters. That they were the only chapters that um, all of the first draft and sort of final draft came from me because Sam was the character that I played in the web series, so it was very much my voice. Um, and uh, most of the web series um, was written predominantly by me first because that's much more my wheelhouse. I can write short form really well. Um, because I don't have to worry about a narrative structure and story arcs and character arcs. I can just sort of bang a few jokes on a page and string it together. But when it came to the writing of the novel, one of the reasons that Sam's chapters are in email form was so that I didn't have to constantly keep up with where Fiona was at with the plotting of the story. It meant that I could write these emails and they could exist as standalone pieces and then as we got further into the, the redrafting process, we would get together and she'd come back and say, oh, now in this chapter, in this email, Sam should mention where we're up to um, in Lizzie's story and in Megan's story, and he should be aware of that. So there was that practical concern, but also, and it was Fiona's, uh, Fiona's initial concept to have those three different voices and three different perspectives, is that we, we wanted there to be those varied perspectives so that the reader could almost not necessarily choose which one to embrace, but not be led down the path of 
just one character's perspective on a situation and a story. So it just felt like it, it was a, a broader approach and a more interesting approach and also just giving more of an, more of an insight into each of these characters as individual protagonists so that it wasn't just one person's story. I imagine also, I mean, uh, the conceit as we enter the novel is that these friends connect on the school bench at the drop-off, but their lives are very separate apart from that. So it would have been very hard to unify a narrative that followed them all without going a little too omniscient narrator. I also wondered about Sam's emails. These are, these are very open and emotional uh, letters to a friend that he's obviously very close with. Um, and did they in any way reflect the ways, I guess, that men are perhaps socially limited or limiting themselves in communicating feelings? It's, it's hard to imagine that much of the openness that Sam includes in his emails, say, happening down at the pub. Not that anything much is happening down at the pub these days. <laughs> no, you, you're absolutely right. Um, you know, it's a, very, it's a very particular form of correspondence, particularly between um, particularly heterosexual men um, but when you're dealing with the, the written word and you're corresponding with your closest friend and it's um, completely private, then there is a, a very, it's, a very, it's a very different person that you're talking to. You're absolutely right. You know, uh, Sam would not be catching up with anyone at the drop-off or at the pub and speaking to anyone and sharing with anyone the way that he does in these emails with his closest friend. And particularly because of where Sam's at in his life, he's in an unhappy marriage, um, he feels emasculated, he feels unfulfilled, and this connection that he has with his best friend is, it's an emotional outlet for him. It's somewhere that he can vent, it's somewhere he can say exactly what he feels um, to someone that he knows and trusts and loves. So you're, you're absolutely right, and it's... Uh, Another reason, quite apart from the practical reasons of me being a lazy writer that just fills in the gaps of Fiona, um, that those that those emails, that those chapters were, um, were were written as emails for exactly that reason, so that he could um, share much more freely than he would in his day to day life. Now, in the drop off, these the, the part of the beauty of reading the drop off is the interplay between these characters and. I, I, I may be I may be kidding myself, but I, I felt I saw some of the the, the stage um, experience that you both bring to the book because the interplay is is just gorgeous. But also much of the the action and the the drama is that of everyday life. It's the drama in the detail. Lizzie, Megan, and Sam they have their routines and they're happy to have them stay that way. But but fate and the school administration conspire against them. When the school's lollipop man, Henry, dies, it forces this both personal introspection, but also volunteering. Um, Megan's, Megan's particularly affected by Henry's death. Are these sorts of daily somethings that we too often consign to the background, are, are they something that we, we should be paying more attention to? I mean, especially now, I feel like we read something like The Drop-Off and it's, it, it's the, the halcyon days of of when minor detail was something that we could afford to ignore. I think that's a, that's a really interesting point to make. And it, it's something that I, I hadn't thought about, but I think you're absolutely right. I mean, part of what we, um, what we love about the, the story that we're telling in the book is that those little experiences that you're talking about do more often than not get left behind. But this, 
our book explores what happens when, when you don't leave those things behind, when you hold them with you and take them with you into the next minute, the next hour, the next day, the next week. Um, and I couldn't agree more. I think that, I think when we can get back to whatever normal is going to be, I think people are naturally going to do that because these small interactions that we have now, um, I mean, my, my mum, who's been on her own isolating for, you know, as long as everyone else, two months, and, and she's been on her own and I've been taking her shopping every now and then. And yesterday she went down to get her mail and, and saw the postman and had a little chat. And she called me afterwards and said, I cannot believe how much more human I feel after just having the most, the, the, the tiniest little interaction that would have been completely taken for granted before this. But for her, this little interaction with the postie reconnected her to her humanity, it made her feel sane again, and it made her, I mean, almost ecstatic. So I, I think you're exactly right. I think that um, there is, I hope, I think we all hope that there is going to be more embracing of these all the the, the minutiae of our day-to-day lives, just paying paying more attention to those experiences and letting them letting them get under your skin a bit more, absorbing them a bit more, trying to figure out what they mean to you, what they mean to those around you, because we are I think it's a, a wonderful thing that we're developing more of a sense of of community and being a good neighbor and, and all those things that I think we all hope will continue on um, once we get past this remarkable and appalling part of history. Um, but yeah, I, I, I hadn't thought about that. So you've, you've got me thinking out loud now, but I think <laughs> absolute, the absolute ideal would be that all these, all these little things and all the little things in the book that sort of snowball into this experience of these people discovering how much they rely on each other and trust each other Maybe that sort of thing can happen um, less in fiction and more in, uh, more in real life. Another really interesting aspect of, of that development of each character, and this is perhaps something that we might not be able to take so much away from our current isolation, though, is the juxtaposition uh, between these moments of their past that are constantly dragging them out of the present. I'm going to I don't. I think the drop off is a book that has so much to experience page to page. I don't think I could spoil too much of the action, but I'm still going to be a bit circumspect here. Very much though, Megan is is constantly battling her her former self, who was a model, and is avoiding interactions that consciously bring that to the fore because she is who she is now. Lizzie has an event in her past that is constantly dragging her out of her present, and meaning that she can't live there, and even even Sam to a greater extent, as he struggles with what is happening in his marriage, it's brought, you know, constantly being brought to his attention that he is not the, the working masterful chef that he, he once was. And it's just, it's, it's really interesting the way in each of those characters, that juxtaposition of then and now constantly takes them away from living. Yeah. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's something that I think everyone struggles with, with those feelings. I've struggled for years with senses of lots of regrets or um, shame about events of the past. And, and what we wanted to explore in the book was how, you know, is it even possible 
to genuinely exist in the now and to let go of your past? Because ultimately we think the answer is, well, no, because everything that's happened in the past informs the person that you are and the person that you will be the next day. And whatever happens to you today, that's going to affect the person you are tomorrow. So it's all a, it's all a part of who you are, but it's, and I mean, you know, this is verging on dangerous self-help territory, but it, it's much more about um, embracing those experiences or just taking the time to observe those experiences as something that, yep, that happened, I did that and I'm not proud of it, or that happened and that was horrible, um, but just not letting it define the person that you have the potential to be today or tomorrow. And of course, the past also contains so much for us. And I really wanted to talk uh, in terms of the drop-off about pop culture and nostalgia. So right now, uh, the drop-off almost feels somewhat nostalgic of our time pre-Rona. Pre There's this line in Megan's story about her savvy use of nostalgia to sell kids' clothing to parents by using these sort of faded pop culture references that the kids probably wouldn't even get. The drop-off itself, though, it's, it's full of pop culture references. And these are things that, you know, that can give our lives meaning and connect us to our past. How do you make, how do you go about making savvy use of these references and ground your story in these details of time and place? Well, I mean, ultimately, I think as far as the pop culture references go in the book, that's, that, that was us entertaining ourselves, you know, their references that, that we make around the house. And also, you know, uh, we've, we've got daughters who are 16 and 12. Um, and I remember the day when um, the 12 year old was walking through the house wearing a Seinfeld t-shirt and the 16 year old was walking around wearing a Jaws t-shirt. So, but, and the uh, 12 year old is, has become obsessed with Seinfeld, but I don't think the 16 year old has seen Jaws, but she just knows it to be an iconic pop culture movie, a movie that's become iconic. So, I mean, I, I always like to, you know, I mean, it's like if you, if you watch The Simpsons, you can just, you can enjoy it for the cartoon fun, or you can recognise every single myriad reference that exists within there. Um, and for the most part, you know, I mean, kids watching The Simpsons when it first started, they, they wouldn't understand probably one, one of the pop culture references, but they, so I think the important part is that if you're going to insert a pop culture reference, it shouldn't be the crux of a scene or a sentence. You should still be able to absorb the scene and the sentence without having to furrow your brow and not understand what the pop culture reference is. And I think that that's what we tried to achieve so that the people that know the pop culture reference, they get a little extra chuckle or a little extra nod of acknowledgement. But if you don't understand the pop culture reference, then the, and I love, I'm still using the word scene, like it's going to be adapted into a movie. I'm sure Nicole Kidman's going to find <laughs> any moment now. Um, but, but you should be able to enjoy that sentence or that paragraph or that page um, even without that knowledge. I mean, look, adaptation, uh, the, we, we might as well go there because adaptation is, I think, the bane of so many readers' existence. And <laughs> while the drop-off is not strictly an adaptation of your web series, there is a sense that these two exist in parallel to each other. Just, just spitball with me here how you would then split your web series off into the three separate narratives. Like, what would you want to retain from the book and what would you 
what is the heart of the drop-off that you would want to see in in a long-form adaptation? That's a fantastic question. I mean, you're right. It's an interesting thing because more often than not, um, we've done adaptation the wrong way around. You know, normally the book is written and then adapted to the screen, whereas we wrote what was ostensibly a bunch of vignettes for the screen that we then adapted into a long-form novel. Um, so. If we were to adapt it into something long form for the screen, I mean, obviously we know and, and love these characters very much. And so I think if we were gonna go, go full circle and take it back to the screen, I would wanna see these characters outside of the, the comfort zone that we, we created for them, um, which is definitely something that we, that we tried to do in the book. We didn't just want them sitting on a bench shooting the breeze for 88,000 words. That would have been a little taxing for a reader. So we definitely you know we, we go much deeper into their lives. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, as spitballing, if it was going to be a feature film, I would want to see them almost not at school. I'd, I'd, I'd want to I'd want to reappropriate the drop off to something like the edge of a coral reef, you know, like the drop off as far as Finding Nemo goes. You know, there's there's the edge and there's the abyss, and let's throw these characters into the abyss and see what happens. Wow, I I personally my vote might be for keep it on the bench, but go full Beckett on it, uh, where the entire backstory of every character can only be can only be captured in elusive references and perhaps facial twitches. You know, as far as budget goes, that's a much better idea. Much <laughs> I'm going with your idea, Andrew. And you can get, we'll get a point system for the royalties. I'm sure we can organise something. I am speaking with Mike McLeish. And dear reader, you have the opportunity to do this yourself because you can go and watch the web series and then get the book, or you can do what I did and read the book and then explore the web series. And it creates, or it allows you to create your own world with these beautiful, fabulous characters. Michael, thank you so much for taking the time and um, thank you for sharing the drop-off with me. It's been an absolute pleasure, Andrew. It's been a, a real joy to talk to you. Thank you. That's it for this great conversation with Mike McLeish. Mike's new novel with Fiona Harris is The Drop-Off and it's out now through Alan and Unwin. Great Conversations is recorded on Gadigal land of the Eora Nation at two SER's Broadway studios in Sydney, Australia. The show is produced and presented by Andrew Popel. To keep up with the latest in books, writing and literary culture, follow us on Twitter, Instagram and on Facebook. You just look for the at Final Draft 2 SER handle. You can also click subscribe in your podcast app. It is a great way to discover new books and get a new Great Conversation episode every week. My name is Andrew Popel. I will be back next week with more Final Draft. Great conversations. Till then, happy reading.